Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And today we have my good friend Ruth Williams here. Yay! Hi, Ruth. Hello. <laughs> um, Ruth, where are you joining us from? I am joining you from Kansas City, Missouri. Excellent. And uh, what is your history with the show Parenthood? Well, it's interesting because before I listened to your podcast, <laughs> if you'd asked me <laughs> if I watched Parenthood, I would have probably said the classic, I think I've seen an episode or two, which sort of encapsulates a lot of TV shows in my past. But I realized as I was listening to your podcast, I'm like, I know more than I thought I knew. So I have determined I must have watched a good handful, but I was never like a, a real fan or devotee. I love that. We always ask our guests to tell a little bit about themselves. So like family that you grew up with, you know, Team Williams, and then maybe like, you know, what you do, how we know each other, perhaps. So yeah. Sure. Um, Well, in Team Williams, I live alone with my cat, but have mom and a dad and two younger sisters. And how I know you is because we're both writers, both poets. And so we met in this kind of poet group of people. Well, thank you again. This is really great. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us, Ruth. Today we are discussing Parenthood Season 2, Episode 7, Seven Names, which the title makes me want to say it like the little girl from The Ring. (laughs) Seven Names. Seven Names. (laughs) It was written by Eric Guggenheim, directed by Jan Eliasberg. It originally aired on October 26th, 2010. And here's the NBC synopsis. In the midst of a financial crisis, Adam must make an important decision that will alter the company's future. Jasmine and Crosby announce their future plans to Jabbar, who reacts surprisingly to the news. Meanwhile, Sarah and Amber argue over Amber's incessant partying with her newfound friend. Sarah experiences challenges at work and even deeper issues with Gordon. Elsewhere, Camille joins Hattie for community service. That aired on October 26th, is that what you said? Yeah. That's so weird because the episode before this is their Halloween episode. Yeah. Why didn't they put their Halloween episode on October 26th? <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I just, <laughs> things happen, but that just seems very strange. Okay. It's a little odd. Yeah. Whatever. Another notable thing about this episode <gasps> is. Friday Night Nightlights Alert! This is major. This is the first episode of Parenthood featuring Michael B. Jordan as Alex. Notable actor and sexiest man alive. For Friday Night Lights viewers, he, of course, played Vince Howard from the East Dillon Lions. And now here he is again. This was my first introduction to Michael B. Jordan because I watched Friday Night Lights all on DVD later when it was finished. And it's a little embarrassing to me almost that this is my first introduction to Michael B. Jordan because it reveals that I've never seen The Wire (laughs) or Keanu Reeves' Hardball, both equally embarrassing (laughs) that I've never seen. I'm the same. This was the first thing I'd ever seen him in. And he was on All My Children, which my mom watched for several years. And so I was often like tangentially aware of but I'm not sure. I've even searched clips from the show and watched them, and I recognize like every actor in the scene except him. <laughs> but he's fantastic, and it's so nice that he's finally here. Yay. Fun fact for anyone who doesn't know that what the B stands for, it's Bakari. I had no idea. Well, now you know. <laughs> but we're going to hold off obsessing over the introduction of Alex for a bit. 
And I, I thought we'd start with Crosby and Jasmine's engagement. Yeah. <laughs> she said yes. I don't know that anyone was on pins and needles wondering what the answer was going to be, but... Especially not anyone listening to our podcast as we totally spoiled, spoiled it. Yeah. <laughs> so. We're not perfect. We're only no. human. But so Crosby is surprised that Jabbar has an underwhelming reaction. Jensen, can I ask you a question? Jensen, if your parents were getting married, wouldn't you be excited? Mom and Dad, I'm Right, right, yeah, I know. Um, but let's say they weren't married. Wouldn't you think that would be like the coolest thing in the world if they got married? You're nuts. You think I'm... I got my little pieces. Normal question. Okay. All right, I'm gonna... Say bye. All right, bye. <laughs> Say bye. That was my favorite part. <laughs> Jensen is not afraid to express his opinion. I also think it's interesting in this clip to note, I'm going to spoil some stuff here for people who don't want to know anything. I am pretty much positive that later in the series, someone points out that Jensen is raised by two dads. Oh. And here he pretty explicitly says, my mom and dad are married. Continuity issues. Well, do you have any thoughts on Jabbar's reaction? Like, why do you think he's so not blown away by this? I am more fascinated by the fact that Crosby so needed him to be excited. They did that cliffhanger thing in the last episode, <laughs> you know, and I, I agree with you, Caleb. It was kind of like, yeah, she's going to say yes. Although sometimes I think Jasmine actually is like way more just kind of like chill about the relationship than Crosby is. And I guess that's where I'm going with my observations about Crosby. It's like he has a picture in his head. It's weird because he's so chaotic. I almost think, though, that he's sort of like fixated on the idea of this perfect happy ending. Mm. And so when Jabbar is not just like ecstatic, like he's just confused. <laughs> How could you not be ecstatic when I gave you a happy ending? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we have remarked, well, Melissa's more remarked on how it really is quite a traditional show in the way it presents families and marriages and whatnot. And it does seem like perhaps Jasmine maybe would be more understanding of other arrangements, I guess, that, that they don't have to be married in order to be a family. And I would suspect that Crosby, coming from the family he comes from, probably has such a clear image of what family is that if his isn't conforming exactly to it, then he probably thinks he's doing something wrong. I think I might have also wanted to kind of read something more into Jasmine. And I feel like the last episode with them looking for an apartment, I wanted to interpret her not as being kind of charmed by Crosby's commitment issues, but more like, hey, dude, I'm fine. Like, I'm going to live, I'm going to live with Jabbar. Like, you figure you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really, really, really like you. But like, I'm not going to do the stereotypical woman wants to get married, you know, kind of thing, which is interesting because Crosby clearly does, even if he doesn't know if he wants to be married, he's clearly like, I want to have this thing. And I want everyone, well, particularly Jabbar, to recognize it as like this achievement. Yes, I think you're so right. And I think he's expecting too much out of Jabbar, not just excitement, 
but like some sort of validation that Crosby is growing up, which is like so beyond a six-year-old, you know, like he just, you know, he's only known Crosby for like a year and Crosby's been pretty responsible. I think the whole time Jabbar has known him. So maybe it doesn't even connect that Crosby's like, no, you don't understand. I was never going to do this. I'm a free spirit, you know, <laughs> like, and, and probably I think I know what the next clip you're going to play is because I, I found that real troubling. So maybe we should listen to that and then discuss that more. Okay. I'm good. Uh-huh. Jabbar doesn't seem to get it, though. It's just kind of weird. What do you mean he doesn't get it? Well, I just expected him to be really excited when I told him, like, oh. woo, fireworks and happily ever after, but he doesn't really care. He's six. Yeah, that's, uh... That's exactly what Jasmine said. But, uh... I don't know, I was really excited to tell him, and he just, you know, he's... Crosby, are you okay? Yeah. I think he was part of why I did it. Well, how big a part? Pretty big part. Mm-hmm. Dude, I don't know, man. It, it happened yep. so fast. Right. It was like, I just felt this immense pressure building, and then there was this moment, and then I kind of got swept up in it, and then what? all of a sudden I'm asking, and she's saying yes, and then... I just maybe, I don't know if it's that or am I afraid that maybe my life is going to change and I'm not ready for that. It's, it's completely natural to be having some doubts. So the proposal was unplanned, all right? Everything with you and Jasmine and Jabbar has been unplanned. I mean, you backed into it, but it's really worked out, right? Jasmine. She's great, right? Yeah, she's, like, perfect. You got a great family, right? She is good and he is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just think it's nerves. Yeah, I think so. I, and I think it's natural, I do. You think so? I do. What did you guys think of that scene? I felt that it confirmed my theory that he's not after cementing Jasmine on his arm. <laughs> that he's after a vision of a family. And there's another motivation for Crosby, which is like validation as a dad, as a father. When he said... Jabbar was one of the big reasons why I felt like, oh no, <laughs> I'm not too. sure that's enough. I'm not sure that's a good idea. And then I also felt annoyed because I thought, where was the pressure coming from? Jasmine was not like, put a ring on it, man. Yeah. It's possible that her family and his family maybe created a little pressure of expectation or like questioning what they were doing, especially her family. But yeah. I was like, I think you might have been pressuring yourself. I agree. Well, and I think not only was he looking for something from Jabbar, I think in a way he may also have been looking for something from Adam and Zeke. Wow. That he has these examples of really good fathers in his life. And I think he would love to count himself among them. And Adam especially has been saying things like, man up, take care of your kid. And this feels perhaps to him like a real man up thing. And I, I think he does love Jasmine. I don't doubt that, but it is hard. Like one of our previous guests, Marlena pointed out the difficulty of just dating someone who already has children because they're always going to put their kids first and not in a selfish way, in a responsible way. But when you're trying to forge a relationship, that's complicated. And then to just compound that with 
that kid is your kid, <laughs> it becomes really hard to divorce loving Jasmine from loving Jabbar because they are a unit. So to understand what his motives are, I think even to him, is really hard to figure out. But I think he needs to be clear on it. I'm at least somewhat comforted that when Adam's like, well, you love Jasmine, he's like, yeah, she's like perfect. If he hadn't had that line, I think I'd have like doom in my heart about that because that was the only thing. Because when he was like, yeah, she is good and Jabbar is great. <laughs> We're like, oh no, like there's a hierarchy and she's only good. And yeah, so I mean, he obviously does love her, but I don't know, as someone who waited nine years to get married. That's, you know, what Mark and I did. I just know that it's not always the fastest you can get there. You know, I remember being really frustrated sometimes that people like acquaintances, their relationships were legitimized in ways that Mark's and mine weren't. And it was always frustrating to me because it would be like a couple. (laughs) I worked with this, this couple who got engaged after like seven months and everyone was like, they're a couple now they're legit. And meanwhile, Mark and I had been together for seven years and people were like, nope, her and her shifty boyfriend, you know, and it was just really frustrating. And I wonder if Jasmine has faith in them in a way that maybe Crosby doesn't, like you guys were saying, like it has to be traditional. And of course that's interesting because Renee, her mother is one of the only examples of pressure I can think of Crosby getting, you know, she said at the beginning of the season that they, they needed to work it out, but Jasmine doesn't seem like someone who necessarily listens to her mother. (laughs) In fact, might do the opposite. So that might've had more of an effect on Crosby than it did on her. And I do think Crosby's proposal seemed very spontaneous coming out of a moment of genuine love for her, of just being in that moment on the floor eating candy with his. But even then, I think Jabbar was such a part of that, even though Jabbar wasn't in the room. It was they had just shared this holiday as a family, which he'd never done before. And he'd been talking to Adam about the cheese fries and maybe the Halloween candy (laughs) was Crosby's cheese fries. Mm, I, I like. That. I, I don't know that I'm even making a coherent point. I guess it's <laughs> oh, just that, that Crosby's <laughs> motivations, I think, are wonderful and pure. It's just a very tricky situation. And I know we have talked a lot previously about is he in love with Jasmine or is he in love with Jabbar? And some people might be upset or underwhelmed if they, as a viewer, arrive at an idea before a character does. Because this seems to be like the first time Crosby is grappling with it. But I kind of love it. To me, it feels kind of like vindication, to be honest. (laughs) And if they're arriving at a conclusion I already came to, then I, of course, think that they are thinking logically. Like, yes, this is what you should be thinking of because I already thought of it. I think all the questions Crosby asks Adam make perfect sense. And I do want to give a little tip of the hat to Adam, who I think does a really good job of supporting Crosby and talking him down and talking it through. I really like when he says you backed into this. He he sort of did not anticipate any of this, but Adam's encouraging him to say, look at how it's led to these positive things, even though it was unexpected and it dropped in your lap. It's already led to like a wonderful experience of being a father and, and nurturing this child and getting to know this woman again after so many years. Keep trusting it. He's giving such good advice, <laughs> you know, as this big brother figure. Yeah. When Zeke said in a previous episode, he fixes everything. And Gordon in this episode told Adam, 
you always handle everything or manage everything. Yeah. Oh, this lots of people are noting noticing this about Adam. You know, Crosby seems to be looking for some sort of just new moment, you know, like like you hear in the movies, you know, like I looked at her and I just knew. And he asks Adam in the previous episode, like, how did you know? And Adam basically says that I just knew. And I wonder if Crosby's struggling a bit because he didn't have necessarily that moment with with Jasmine. But I don't think that really has anything to do with who loves who more. I think that's more of a personality thing. Like I'm the sort of person I rarely say I just knew about anything, whether it's a a spouse or my wedding dress or a house that I've bought. Like I tend to like obsess. I, I, I think I knew early on Mark was the person I wanted to be with, but it wasn't like a magical moment where we locked eyes and I was like, yes, you know, it was just like a gradual, oh, this is the person for me. But I just don't think everyone has that moment. And I think sometimes it screws people over because that's the message that so many people buy into that love is magic. And, you know, if you don't feel that there's something wrong with you or with it, you know, and while I do think they might be rushing and maybe they should take their time a bit more, well, he's already done it. It's the, the train's on the track and, and he does love her. And I don't think he needs to question that. That's a really good point, just that everyone's experience of major life things like falling in love are going to be different because people are different. And if it doesn't look or feel like the idea you have in your head, sit with it a while, I think, and see, if. but does it feel right to you? You know, some people believe in soulmates and they believe that there is one person out there for them. And other people find it much more romantic to think, I could make it work with lots of people and I've chosen this person and now we commit to making it work. Or in a non-romantic way, I often think some people think everything happens for a reason and that gives them comfort in hard times and it helps them get through the day. I am someone who finds comfort in thinking things do not happen for a reason. (laughs) I find trying to think of everything happening for a reason put so much pressure on everything. I can't stop myself from trying to figure out what the reason is. And I find it much more comforting to go, there is no reason. Things just happen and you roll with it. And that gets me through the day. And I'm sure some people think, doesn't that just feel chaotic? And aren't you scared and depressed all the time? No, because people are different. (laughs) I feel like too, once you you go through that first breakup where you realize that first serious breakup, I should say. Okay, let's distinguish from kind of (laughs) more minor ones. But the first breakup, the first big breakup I went through, I was like, how is it possible that you could love someone and then also recognize you should not be together? Wow. And I, I, my mind melted with sadness because I thought, well, if you love someone, if you, if you both care for one another, you should be able to just work it out. (laughs) And it's like, no, actually it's more complicated, which in a way this episode does show, I think in some other storylines and this whole show does show that commitment is really difficult you know, love, the feeling, the little bubbles in your stomach or whatever, bubbles, butterflies. I like <laughs> the bubbles more. Bubbles, yeah. Hey, <laughs> let's go it with could that. Be, could be indigestion, <laughs> could be love. We don't know. Um, but those feelings, like they do dissipate, right? And they dissipate over time. But when I was younger, those realizations were really painful. But as I've gotten older, I'm much more like, well, you don't know what to expect. Life is full of surprises, like truly as cliche as that is. And 
you can think you're deeply, deeply in love and then one day realize you're not or it wasn't going to ever work out. And you have to be open to those surprises. And I, I feel like the reason you can be more open as you get older is because you realize you can basically survive and thrive. Like you were saying, Caleb, you realize I could be with a lot of different people, yeah. a lot of different guys out there, you know, could fit with me. I never know. I can't predict it. <laughs> and I think that that's actually really helpful to survive and thrive. Otherwise you might get really depressed. Well, and I also think that people get caught up in this idea of a right decision when in many ways there, there, I do think there are some wrong decisions. You know, I think there are some paths you shouldn't go down probably, but this idea that life is just one big, like multiple choice game and you have to pick the right one or you're screwed and you're unhappy. And I, I think that's kind of damaging actually, you know? And, and so weirdly, I think Crosby could be happy getting married to Jasmine. I think he could be happy waiting and, and, you know, they just keep doing what they're doing for a while and get to know each other better. I don't know that there's necessarily one path to happiness. And so I think that maybe he's a little caught up with making the, you know, like the right choice. Did, did I do this right? And it's like, well, yes and no, really, you know? So. I love that you mentioned that because one of my favorite things about this episode was I felt like so many of the storylines presented had sort of ethical dilemmas or if not ethical, people trying to find out what the right decision is and bumping up against the fact that there isn't a right decision. There's just maybe a less bad decision <laughs> and, and then a, a worse one. For instance, like the whole Sarah Amber storyline. Oh, yeah. That... <laughs> she kind of sums up pretty succinctly. I'm not everyone's mother. I'm, you know, I did the best I could. And if she wants to tell her own mother and that helps Amber keep her friendship, then, uh, you know, that's okay. Oh. Right? Absolutely. Right, Mom? Yeah. Th these are the tough decisions. Mom, what does that mean? Dad, what does she mean? I agree with you 100%, honey. She's not my daughter, you know. Hello? Well, it sounds to me like uh, Amber's the one making this decision. Mother, she definitely is not. But you know what a tough time we have, and I, I'm just trying to let her grow up a little bit. And, you know, she had a good, some good points. You know, uh, teenage girls can be very convincing. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> But this is really serious. You know, I don't even want to think about what could happen if she tried driving in that condition. And you have to think about what you would want if the situation was reversed. You know, if it was Amber. So what, what says our panel? Does Sarah have <laughs> a moral obligation to tell Kelsey's mom about what happened? Or is Amber right that... There are extenuating circumstances and she ought to be left to tell her in her own time. It's a tough call. I'm trying to think of what I would have done if I were Sarah. And I'm sort of like, probably I would try to take some middle path where I would wait a bit. And in a weird way, that's, that's what ends up happening, right? That Sarah doesn't yeah. really make a quick decision. But I feel like maybe I would have taken a similar approach, like pondered it for a while, because it could be possible that Kelsey would have told her mom and, you know, it would have resolved itself. At the same time, 
I do get what Camille was saying about the driving drunk and would you want to know if Amber did this? And it's like, yeah, that kind of sways me. So I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm sort of like in the same situation <laughs> as Sarah. <laughs> I thought that was what made it such a good dilemma because I really didn't think it was obvious. In fact, I think I was very easily swayed by whoever was talking. Like when, <laughs> when, when Amber was talking, I'm like, yeah, she makes a good point. And then right, when Camille right. was like, oh yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> you know, and, and I think about like, this isn't the same at all because it doesn't involve alcohol or like, you know, potentially life-threatening situations. But with my students, I know we're supposed to like call home a lot, like if students are failing a class. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I teach high school, you teach college, you would not call the parents. That would make no sense. But with me, I'm like supposed to. But I I often don't, or at least not right away. I try to talk to the student first and then hopefully they'll talk to their parents. I just feel like it kind of sucks not to even give them a chance to talk with their parents. So I think I probably would have done the same thing, like way to, way to beat, see if Kelsey really is going to talk to her. And then when it's, I think I would have done exactly what Sarah did in that moment where it's like, oh, oh, honey, you're okay. Here's what happened. Caleb, what about you? Yeah, I think I agree. I do want to at least acknowledge that Amber made a compelling case. And I thought that it was nice of Sarah, you know, when she said like, I trust you to Amber that she trusted there, this was not just teenagers not wanting to get in trouble, that there was a, a dynamic between them that was really dysfunctional and not going to be helped by adding this to it. So yeah, I think I would have done what Sarah did and right up to, well, once I have to lie about it, straight to a fellow mom. Like I know yeah. Lorelai Gilmore on Gilmore Girls <laughs> would talk about like a mom code that moms have to be <laughs> on each other's sides. And and ultimately I agree. Like I think she has to tell the parent because it literally affects the child's safety. And Camille makes the best point. If it was reversed, Sarah would definitely want to know. Yeah. The only thing I might've done differently, just because I am really meek, and averse (laughs) to conflict like that. I might've deferred to the other mom a little bit more like, well, you know, your daughter better than I do rather than saying like, it didn't seem like her first beer. (laughs) I would not have said that. I think in the moment I would have taken the issue of, I'm just telling you what I saw, nothing more. I'm not telling you how to handle it, but here is what happened. I can't keep it from you. Yeah. I don't know if that would have actually improved anything, but. That mom seemed pretty in denial of of who her daughter was, which was an excellent foil, I thought, to Amber and Sarah. I mean, Amber has been drunk and has been high, and Sarah knows it. She's had sex, and Sarah knows it. When Amber kept saying earlier to Kelsey, like, your mom has to get to know you as a person, and she said it to Sarah, you know, we fight, but you know me as a person. I think that's exactly what you're speaking to. Well, and I really, you know, I debated. I was like, is she manipulating Sarah right now? Just saying (laughs) we're close, right? (laughs) But no, I actually, I don't think she means to. Like maybe the the effect is it is manipulation, but I think she means it. I think she really does feel like they're close. And Uh, yeah, I had that thought too. I actually wrote that down in my notes. I'm like, is she manipulating her? Yeah. I also felt deeply annoyed because I was like, this Kelsey girl, she's not worth going to bat for. I don't think she's not, she's not going to go to bat for you. She's clearly no. not. 
Well, and it is unfortunate that the way it was set up, it seemed like the consequence everyone was trying to avoid was something really bad for Kelsey. But what ended up happening was something really bad for Amber. Why? Why what? Why would you tell after you promised? Why? <sighs> Honey, she told me what Kelsey had said. It was a, an enormous lie. Well, I couldn't I'm play sorry. along. Of course she's going to lie about it. She can't tell her the truth yet. I would have had to lie, well, too. I'm sorry. I really needed you to not say anything, Mom, because now she won't let me hang out with Kelsey anymore. What do you mean? She said that everything is my fault. She said that I am the problem. What? And that I'm a bad influence and that Kelsey's not allowed to hang out Please, with me anymore. No. Yes, Mom. And listen, I'll call her. You I'll can't, fix Mom. It, it doesn't matter. It. She won't listen. And so now I don't get to hang out with my one friend here, my one friend, and I'm all alone. And it just sucks, Mom. I thought I could trust you, and I'm very, very disappointed with you. Kind of funny that in this scene, there's like some traditional reversals or reversals of traditional relationships happening. And in this case, it's like normally it's the parent who's like, I am really disappointed in your behavior. And the kid's like, oh, man. And it is way it's just reversed. Yeah. On the one hand, I thought Amber is being a little unfair, but I could understand where that feeling was coming from. Yeah. Especially when she makes clear that she doesn't have a robust social circle. This was like her lifeline to feel okay at school. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that line. And of course, Mae Whitman's delivery of it, like my one friend and she says it twice. And I think that's when I was like, Oh, of course she's crying. Of course she's going to the absolute darkest place with this. It's yeah. It's Well, and I wonder a little bit, you know, when we were questioning if she was manipulating Sarah with talk of their relationship, I do wonder, was this what Amber was afraid of all along? Or was she really afraid for her mm. friend? Because if she recognized I only have this one friend and thought this might complicate things between them, then understandably, she might want to not rock the boat. Yeah. And if she had said that, would that have changed Sarah's thinking at all? I actually think that Amber probably thinks her mom did the right thing, which is a weird thing to say. But I think that might be part of why she's crying and part of why it kind of resolves pretty easily at the end. You know, like, <laughs> I had to wrote like, that down. I was like, the, the resolution was unexpectedly easy, but I said, it didn't bother me much. No, she's like, she was pretty weird, I guess. Like, <laughs> I agree. It yeah, was funny too. I would have said that Kelsey was in a lot more episodes. Is this it? Than she was. She's I think done. this is her last one. I would have said, Oh yeah. Zasha Mamet's in like half a season. I was just like four episodes and I feel like she barely spoke in most of them. <laughs> so I guess hats off to her. She, she made an impact. <laughs> I think she's a really good actress, but I never really understood why they were friends. I was like, Amber is much cooler than she is, yeah. even though at their age, probably Kelsey was perceived as cooler, but Amber was like actually cooler, like knew herself and, you know, wasn't just trying so hard, you know, all the time to fit in and, and, that's Amber. She's the cool one, even though no one can see it yet. Well, I would be remiss to leave this storyline without recognizing one of my all-time least favorite lines of dialogue in <laughs> oh, any Parenthood yeah. episode ever. That was amazing how you saved that girl. <laughs> I, I, In its defense, the delivery of the line was not as bad as I remembered. In my mind, it was... It was amazing how you <laughs> saved that girl. <laughs> and, but I still think it's so dumb. He, 
Gordon didn't save her. She wasn't drowning in the pool. She was just in the pool. And you can say it, it was amazing how you helped that girl. It was amazing how you handled that situation. There's all sorts of things she could say, but he didn't save that girl. And of all the people to be giving more credit than he deserves, Gordon no. is the last person who needs it. Anyway, okay, he didn't get that off such, the chest. This is such a dumb comparison, but I'm going to go ahead and make it. When I was 17 years old, I was run over by a car and I was literally run over by a car. Like the car like tapped me basically. Well, I don't know how this happened, but like somehow I was on the street lying down and the car drove over my leg and broke my leg. So and then the backed over it right? and backed over. It went a few times. Yeah. It was oh. This little old lady who couldn't decide the best way to get off of my leg. And oh, no. it, yeah, it was, it was horrible, but let me tell you something. This is so dumb, but when other people use the phrase, I was run over by a car, but what they mean is they were hit by a car. I'm irrationally angry. <laughs> I'm like, I, I was you have run- that right. <laughs> like, I was run over. I had a friend once who was like lightly tapped and the guy was drunk. So she got like a huge settlement and stuff. I got nothing and I broke my leg and I was like, it's so, so petty. It's so stupid. But I was like you, but she kept saying I was run over by a car and I never corrected her, but I thought of it all the time. Like you were not. So anyway, yeah. We hope I, you're listening, poser. <laughs> I just bring this up because I think I can see why it would get you if like, for her to be like, it's amazing how you saved that girl. And you're like, okay, maybe saved her from like embarrassment. Um, but yeah, didn't save her. Yeah. Sometimes the wrong word choice can be infuriating. Yeah. Yeah. I did want to point out though, with that, that I really loved that Sarah didn't go with him to LA. I feel like yes. a lot of people have said that they don't think Sarah's a good parent. And I, I still do think she's a good parent, and I, I don't know. I, I thought that was great, but yeah, you agreed, Ruth. Did you? Yeah, have I that? do agree. I so one, I had to go back in my mind to the last episode, and I was like, was she in a deeper pool than I perceived? Was she <laughs> doggy paddling? No, she was like holding on to like an inflatable, and I yeah. think she was standing. I think she was standing. Her in head the pool. was always above water. She was talking to people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also, I thought when he got into it, I was like, this is over the top, man. You're you're making a gesture. Yeah. Well, he did that dive too. Like if he just <laughs> waited out to her, but he did the whole like dolphin dive. And I think that's actually similar to what he did when he rolls up in a chauffeured car. Oh, right? Yeah. With he the rolls- world's yeah. biggest bouquet of flowers. Right. And it's yeah, like it's too much. You, ha- you had one kiss. Now you're saying, Will you come with me to LA? And we all know what's he gonna go do in LA? Basically plead for money from his investors. It's like yeah. a high stress situation, but he's like, I'll, I'll impress this new gal that I, I like. I was glad that she said no, that she clearly had other things to do, maybe be at work for one thing. I don't know, but yeah. it reminded me of like that concept of love bombing oh, you know, that yeah. some people say can be like a red flag for abuse when somebody comes on super strong. And maybe it's not even a red flag for abuse, but to me, if anybody doesn't know me very well and starts saying, come away with me. I love you so much. I think you don't know what you're talking about. You hardly know me. And so I, I'm struggling to believe you. And I'm also questioning your motivations. Yeah. I think he genuinely was enthused about her. I will say that, but I just thought, Oh, this is too much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely noticed that he said, I have a suite in what such and such hotel for four days or something. 
And I thought all they've done so far is kiss. He's basically <laughs> saying, come to LA and let's have sex, which just seems like an odd way to reach that milestone in a relationship. And also when you point out coming with the limo and the flowers and stuff, if you're going to LA to get investments in the company to save it because you're in financial ruin, maybe drive your own car to LA. I'm sure he's not paying for the limo himself. Right. And stay in a super eight, not in whatever suite you're in. Oh, I just hate him so much that I find I don't give him credit for anything. Even like, I think if any other love interest had said like when she was like, oh, if I'd known you were coming, I wouldn't have looked like this. And he, I think he said something like, you look pretty cute, actually. I think I would have found that charming from anyone else. For sure from Mark Sear. I, for sure from Forklift Mike. Why not? Maybe even from Jim, but for sure not uh, Gordon. No way. Yeah. Ugh. This all speaks to another dilemma that I thought didn't have a clear cut right answer, wrong answer. Hey, I'm going on a... Can't you knock? Come in. Coffee run, do you want anything? Because it sure seems like you do. Yes, I would love a coffee, thank you. Hey, um, Gordon asked me out. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but, you know, just checking in with you. Unbelievable. You guess it's not. What's the problem? He's a little prick, that's the problem. I thought you guys liked each other. Why, why it's so harsh? Listen, Sarah, I've known this guy a lot longer than you have, okay? Okay, well, you know him differently, and I'm getting to know him um, outside work, you know, mm-hmm. so maybe we just have had different experiences. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who'd be the better judge of his character. I mean, the guy who he's used, abused, and lied to for 15 years, or the latest girl he's trying to get in bed? I don't know. Thanks. It's a tough call. So, such a compliment. Sarah, I'm sorry, okay? I'm really sorry, but if anybody doesn't know this guy, it's you. All right, well, I'm going to make my own decisions. But for you, I'm going to decide decaf. Oh, okay. Great, I think thanks. you're a little worked up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So now, question to the panel. Does Sarah have to ask Adam's permission? Can he actually withhold permission? Does she care what his opinion is? Is he capable of giving Gordon a chance? Is she capable of hearing an honest warning about him? Tangled web, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think permission is what she should ask. I do think she should like give him a heads up. And I think she should listen to his opinion because I think he's right that he knows him way better and and has an unfiltered, unbiased like version of him, a pure version of him. But yeah, I don't think it would be fair to be like, Adam, can I date him? You know, she's a fully grown woman. And so, yeah. I think she didn't want to upset him by having it revealed later. Mm. And I think she feels also that like he did her a solid by getting her this internship. And I don't think she wants to kind of like make things messy. And it was one thing to kind of go out with the warehouse dude, but to be like possibly going out with the boss, the CEO, I think is another level. I also thought that in a way, the sense I get of Sarah is something similar to Crosby. Like this idea that Sarah just seems to, I can't believe I'm about to say blossom. (laughs) Don't want to use that metaphor. That is so cheesy. But I feel whenever I see Gordon like say nice things to her and even the warehouse guy, I I feel like she just sort of like, she's just, oh, I just warms up. 
right? And I get the yeah. sense that maybe she's sort of just needing that validation as a woman, uh, you know, yeah. or she needs something to work out for her. And that's something similar to the vibe I get from Crosby a little bit. Mm. It's not that he's been like just a failure. He seems to enjoy his chaotic life and he's kind of cool with it, even if other people judge it. But I get the sense he's come to a point where he's like, I want that thing that other people are going to see that they say, good job, you're doing it. You're an adult. And I sort of some sort of see something similar with her. Like, yeah, you've got a nice guy and, and you're making it work and it's a wonderful romance. But we know Adam's right about Gordon. So it's setting up this tension where we're like, no, not him. He's not going to <laughs> make you blossom. <laughs> yeah, we've definitely talked about how she's so susceptible to any praise or compliments or validation, which I think people always talk about like, oh, I love playing a flawed character. And I often kind of bristle at it because usually they're talking about like, oh, I'm playing a mob boss or a drug dealer who's like murdering people. And I thought that is not a flaw I can relate to. But so this is a kind of flaw that I think is very human and very relatable. Sarah has low self-esteem and it makes her vulnerable to kind of easy manipulation from this guy who's, I don't think, a good guy. And in a way, I feel, I feel like she's almost helpless to it. He just says the nice things and he has the flowers in the limo and he looks like the kind of guy that anyone else from the outside looking at their relationship would go, wow, Sarah did really well for herself. But, you know, it's a facade because, like, he doesn't even tell her the real reason for the trip. So their relationship right off the bat has this, like, superficial element to it. You know, it's it's this sheen. I mean how different would it be if he did just show up in his normal car without this huge arrangement of flowers and just said, you know, I am going to LA for a few days for a really tough reason. And I'd love the company, honestly. And, uh, we could get different hotel rooms. Um, but I would just, it'd be a good chance for us to get to know each other. So much more human at least. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't think he wants to be human with her. And frankly, I'm not sure if she wants him to be because I yeah. think she's really falling for an image. And I think that's part of why she left, you know, Mike in, in the warehouse. Uh, you know, she wanted to be with the fancy guy. And that's not a great color on her, I don't think. So there's something about Sarah that is compelling to me, even though I'm kind of like, don't do it, Sarah. Don't go down that path <laughs> to have a relationship, a marriage or whatever, bust up and then have mm -hmm. to move back in with your parents. And you're kind of, unlike Crosby, who's like an unconventional character, I think he... Crosby is sort of the lovable goof, if you will, of the family. Yeah. And people are kind of like, oh, you live on a boat. That's cool. They're not going to be like, man, <laughs> you know, the fact that you can't maintain a mortgage. They, they don't see his lack as deficient. But I think Sarah, even though the family doesn't necessarily treat her this way, I think she feels like I am a mess up. I don't make enough money. You know, she got so excited when she like had an idea that Adam took about the shoes. Oh, yeah. Because... She feels like I don't have a lot of value in the world. And I, I think I can relate to that. I mean, I'm single. I'm, or, well, I have a boyfriend, but I'm unmarried and I don't have kids. And I'm of an age where that's so typical to have those things. And I feel like, well, you saw it in just what I said. I sense myself as single, even though I have a relationship. <laughs> Somehow, yeah. if I think of a form where I had to fill out whether I was married or single, I would have to fill out that I'm single, even though yeah. I've had this boyfriend for many, many years. 
I feel that there's this lack that I have, even though I don't believe that everyone needs to be married. I do not think that the traditional heteronormative family is the only kind of family. I do not think that women are validated by having children. I think all these things, but what I feel, I think mm. is somewhat maybe what Sarah feels about being back in a parent's house. Like, how did I end up here? Why am I inadequate? Like, what's wrong with me? Not... Yeah hey, I had some bad luck, or maybe the system that tells me I'm adequate is what's wrong. Maybe those forms should have a category for people in long-term relationships. I don't know, but then the truly single people who don't have the long-term relationships would feel left out. But, yeah. you know, where are those gradations of success that would allow Sarah to plug in and say, you know what? I have had some setbacks, but actually I'm raising two kids. They seem okay. I've got, got some new opportunities on the horizon with potential career path. I'm, I'm, I'm doing something good. That picture of success doesn't fit that. And so it's so easy to fall for the Gordons of the world who are like, Ooh, I think you're great. It's like, yeah, I I want people to think I'm great. (laughs) I don't know. That's a bit of long winded uh, explanation, but suffice to say, I feel for her. (laughs) Yeah. Very well said. You know, I think part of the trouble with like needing validation all the time or with not being able to um, think that we are enough, like, I, I think that's, we're often only seeing other people's successes. We're not like actually seeing everything about a person. And so we're often like jealous of people who are just as flawed as we are. Nobody's got it totally together. And we're not like considering the whole story of why someone is successful in one in one way. I mean, I don't even know if this is the next storyline we're going to be discussing, but um, Sarah has been jealous of Julia basically the entire show. And there are lots of reasons to be jealous of Julia, but like this episode's a real peek behind that curtain and it's not perfect, you know, and and probably in Sarah's head it is. And so I, I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I also love in that Sarah Gordon scene, I thought it was a nice example of dramatic irony for any listeners who don't know, that's when the audience knows something <laughs> that the characters don't. And this is a pretty small scale example, I feel like, but just that Sarah obviously didn't know that Adam had just gotten off the phone about having to fire people. And it was at Gordon's command. Yeah. That makes the scene so riveting to me of just, oh, here she is defending this guy. And we, the viewer, know all this horrible information that she doesn't know. I mean, what a coward, right? Like, like that he's not even going to fire the people himself. And and later- Or when even he's... pick who they are. Like he makes Adam not just fire them, but choose them. Ugh, yeah. Plus he paints it as like, Adam, come on, are you man enough to do this? He doesn't say, are you man enough to do this? But he seems to sort of like, imply and he's being manipulative he's kind of making it so that adam feels like oh well i better do this but i better prove i can do this and then it turns out it's like well gordon just doesn't want to do it 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 just it it's really revealing i think about his character that he can't tell sarah the real reason he's going to la and he makes somebody else pick and and fire you know that it's just his idea of who he is i think is quite different from who he actually is Maybe he's even aware of it on some level that it could all come crashing down. And so it's like carefully constructed lies. I don't know. Yeah. Well, he does say at the end to Sarah, he, I, I felt like he basically said, Adam's a better person than I am. Yeah. And that is probably my favorite moment of Gordon thus far, <laughs> that he did have a little bit of self-awareness, 
or just when he said, who would you rather have firing you? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, amen to that. <laughs> but that's hardly like to Gordon's great credit. That, oh, I'm a total jerk, but I know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, another situation that I felt like didn't have a clear right answer, wrong answer is Joel and Julia just trying to balance working parent, stay at home parent, work life balance in general. My opinion is I feel like they are maybe not good planners <laughs> because <laughs> the first note I took about their storyline, which was I think after Joel unexpectedly had to go in the next day and they didn't know what they were going to do and who's going to pick Sydney up after school. I wrote down, have Joel and Julia ever heard of a modern innovation called a babysitter? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> you can't wait until the day of to yeah. hire the babysitter, but luckily their entire family has no boundaries and they all live <laughs> in a six, six mile radius. So just call <laughs> someone to watch her for a few hours. And I thought asking Zeke was a perfectly reasonable solution to the problem. And me too. Yeah, sure, maybe he doesn't do things exactly like they would, but Sydney's safe. She's with someone she knows and trusts and loves. What's the real problem here? I I was like, so she eats greasy chicken one night. Calm down, Julia. Like, I did not understand what the problem was with that at all. I thought she was being in that particular scene, especially ridiculous because I, I really felt pretty torn most of the episode. But that moment when she comes home and she's like furious that her dad is there, or at least put out that her dad is there with the chicken. I was like, I just don't see where this is a problem. But like when he called her with the emergency at work, it seems to me that that is a problem they could have foreseen. Okay, I'm at my job. You're at your job. Who's the point person for Sydney (laughs) if something comes up? And I felt for Julia being called out of that important meeting. And I felt for Joel knowing someone's got to go pick our daughter up. And I have this thing at work and my work coming up. But couldn't they have discussed the night before or, you know, honestly, weeks or months before Joel doesn't need to check with Julia call Zeke or call any member of the family (laughs) and say, you need to go pick her up, take her home. One of us will be there shortly. Yeah. I think it was sort of like they were moving from the fantasy to the reality. The fantasy was let's have a second baby and I'm going to help you feel more validation, Joel, by allowing, like, well, allowing you to work. I mean, that's kind of how Joel is, is perceiving it. Right. But you're yeah. going to work and I'm going to work. And we're both going to feel great. And like she says later, like, I just want us both to be happy. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> there's going to have to be a whole structure that'll have to be put in place and probably a really detailed, like day by day routine. Now, Joel to his maybe discredit, or maybe he just didn't realize his construction job, it's like, it's it's like sort of chaotic. Like he doesn't know exactly when he's going to be there. Whereas her job seems more fixed in some ways. And I thought, yeah. okay, you both need to figure out how and where you can like give yeah. and take because there are going to be moments, even with your schedule, that somebody's going to have to, to kind of fall on the sword as it were and just sacrifice their work. You know, when you said they need to make perhaps a really detailed plan, I immediately thought of, Go look at Adam and Christina's calendar oh, if you right. need some inspiration. <laughs> Which, and that's a huge challenge, but they're doing it every day because they've clearly figured out that's what they have to do. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, they have fights about that. It's not that's going to save you from any conflict ever, but it might just be necessary. They're also, I think, really misfiring both of them on their communication. Like 
in that scene when he comes home after Julia made the popsicle Eiffel Tower, she's being super passive aggressive. You know, yeah. had to get done. It's fine. Because she feels that she was put in an unfair position. And then I think that Joel knows she's not going to be happy. So he's being extra cheerful. Like he's hoping that'll rub off on her or make up for how he knows she must feel. But I can see how from her perspective, that would feel either like obtuse or oblivious or patronizing. Like don't come in going, wow, you built the tower. It's like, fuck yeah, I did. And now do you see me writing this brief? (laughs) <laughs> that I should have been starting two hours ago because you weren't here when you said you were going to be here. I was I was thinking, OK, if you all are going to make this work, you need to let go of some of your standards. So fried chicken is OK sometimes. Zeke watching Sydney is OK sometimes. And we're not going to be doing Sydney's projects for her. She's going yeah. to have to do them herself. I was like, first of all, is this even a real assignment? I mean, I could conceive <laughs> a bonkers assignment. <laughs> I could conceive of a world in which a, a person would assign a task, like build this model to these specifications to learn about the construction of the Eiffel Tower or to learn how to follow directions or something. I don't know. But the idea that someone Sydney's age, I'm old she's supposed to be, but I'm like, what <laughs> is going on with this Eiffel Tower? <laughs> But again, they could have basically given her supervised, mm-hmm. you know, Julia could have been on her computer while Cindy's sitting at the table, messing around with the glue and the sticks, totally creating yeah. a mess. And that's okay. What's the worst that's going to happen? Her teacher is like, this isn't great, but I don't think that one assignment will give her like a bad, I don't even know what kind of grades you get in elementary school. I think it's just like passing or not passing. Well, and that finished product, does anyone be- is anyone no. going to believe she actually got that? <laughs> no. no. It's not a six-year-old's handiwork, even if she is gifted. Right. I it's love like- her rubber band ball work, but the popsicle thing is a little more advanced. <laughs> Gotta yeah. cut some corners, you know. Julia, like you said, Ruth, Julia wants them both to be happy, but it's like their idea of happiness is like perfection, where they're both rock stars in their professional world, but they're also rock stars at home. Like they're the best parents and they're, you know, the best with each other and they're the best team. And it's like unrealistic that they can keep that going. And I totally get where Joel is coming from. Julia can be not very appreciative. And and I think that he has been doing so much work at home for so long that I think from his perspective. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm, I've been doing this for years. I ask for a week from you, but to be fair to Julia, Joel only had to do that for years. And it's like, she's having to do Joel's job and her own job. And she can't do both. Like if, if she had a week of not being a lawyer, like if she had taken a week off of work and just did Joel's job, true, I think she could have done that fine, but she couldn't do all of it. She was still working full time in this very demanding job. So, well, and wanting them both to be happy might also point out one of the real underlying problems, which is I think in the arrangement that they had, I think Julia was perfectly happy with that. And Joel wasn't. That's the issue. Yes. So this this arrangement is not working for both of them. And I worry that for all the discussions they have, they never really hash that out. Babe, I can't do this. What can you do? 
I mean, I'm leaving work early. I'm coming home. I'm working all hours yes. of the night. You're not even here. My dad's here feeding it, our child. Your dad did a fine crap. job. It's not. It's a one night. It wasn't that bad. You know what? Um, it's been a hard week, but we're gonna get through it. We're right at the tail end there. What about the next one? My dad told me this guy wants to hire you again. Are you gonna do it? You know, I don't. I, I'm only focused on this job. I'm just trying to get through this job. Okay, listen, I know we said there needs to be more room for you, especially if we're going to have yes, a second child, but did. I need to understand, you know, is this what that looks like? Because I don't know if we can manage it. I don't know how that works. Uh, how can we manage it? I don't this? know. I don't know, but we'll figure it out, okay? We need to discuss. We need to discuss this. Can we go? Oh. Yes, yeah. Okay, let's, we let's need discuss, to discuss this. it. Yes, let's talk about this. You don't want me to work ever. Oh, give me some credit, Joel. I've moved... Mountains. I've moved mountains for you for years, Julia, and this is one week I'm asking from you. I'm, I'm not trying to be ungrateful. I'm just trying to face reality here. Okay, what reality the is reality that? The reality is that just if you're working all hours of the of the night, I'm working mad yes. hours. There's no one watching our child. Oh, what am that's I gonna, so dramatic. I There's mean, plenty of people that take care gonna, of our kids. Oh, that's, I mean, what am I just supposed to what leave a deposition? What are you getting at? I'm billing $600 an hour for so you can grab some guy's bathroom? No, you're right. I mean, if it's uh, if it's about whose time is worth more, you win. I have so many things to say about this little scene. Let's hear them. First of all, again, I find it fascinating that they've basically shifted the genders in this. Traditionally, we would definitely see the woman being in Joel's position. And so a lot of the things that Joel is saying, I could very much imagine a stay-at-home mom saying, which I find fascinating because I think to myself, how do we perceive it differently because Joel is saying it, as opposed to if we saw, I don't know, Christina say it. And I think she maybe does have a storyline that's kind of about her thwarted ambitions. But that's one question I mused on when I was watching this. But two, I thought about some of the kind of stuff that's coming out about the current pandemic and women are leaving workforce, uh, that it would be women who have children. And they are leaving because of the very thing that Julia points out except in the reverse. The men, their husbands, their partners, they make more money. So when it comes down to times are tough and we've got to watch these kids and help them with online schooling, it's a money thing. You make less money, so you're the one to take the hit. And I thought, I totally get that argument, but when Julia says that, I can feel for Joel because it's like, sometimes money is not the only thing. And we know in a male-dominated society that when women leave the workforce, it's harder for them to get back into it. At the same time, on the side of Julia, I think, why is it that we can't have a workplace that accommodates working parents, man, woman, non-binary folks, all of them, if they have kids, yeah. let's allow people to have flexibility. Let's also allow people without kids to have flexibility. People are caretakers of all kinds, right? You know, it's, right. might not be a kid, might be an ailing parent, might be an ailing friend. Why don't we have a system that allows working families to have work-life balance mm -hmm. where they had resources that would make it easier for them to both find the validation and the financial well-being through work? We just haven't figured out. Well, it's not that we haven't figured out. We're not confused. It's that we businesses and governments don't want to make it easier because it costs money. That is the very thing that Julia references, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's money. We don't want to pay for childcare. We don't want to allow people to leave work early to have a flexible schedule. These things cost money. But in reality, you have happier employees 
anyway, that's my my rant about that. I just think it's so interesting that they switched the roles. No, I completely agree. I think that it makes me see both of their perspectives more clearly because it's switched. Once again, my husband just kind of walked through the room. He often doesn't sit and watch a whole episode, but he watched part of it. And I was on Joel's side and he was on Julia's side. It's like the gender is flipped, but maybe we were each somehow relating to what is usually the the gender role. You know, like even though Mark and I don't have children and we've both always worked and we even have the same job, we're both teachers, I think... I can really imagine what it must feel like to be that that stay-at-home person who's not as valued. And I think, you know, the scene that really resonated with Mark was when Joel called and she did have to leave that meeting. He was like, why is he even calling her? And I was like, she's being so short with her husband. And he's like, he should not be calling her there. Like, I that's, felt that way too. Really? Yeah. So I think that's, I, I thought it must have been a really good conflict if we were able to just see each side so clearly. Well, you know, I'm always harping on bad communication and, you know, they have plenty of it here. Note Joel literally using a you message. Uh, you don't want me to work ever. That's that's not helping anything. <laughs> and when she airs her feelings about Zeke watching Sydney. Joel just totally delegitimizes her concern. It wasn't that bad. And while I, on the merits of the <laughs> of the argument, I kind of agree with him. That that's re- that felt really um, disrespectful for him to come back with. No, it wasn't that bad. It was basically you're saying you're over it. You're you're dumb for thinking that. Ooh. Anyway, but for for all the bad communication that they are displaying. I don't think this is a conflict that would just be solved if they communicated better. Julia says she's being practical, which she is, but there's a downside to that because practically speaking, she just wins. Like he says, if it's whose time is more valuable, she wins. But then that leaves no room for things that are important to Joel. And that's not a solution. It seems to me they have to sit down together, like we've said, and come up with a plan and they have to do it when they're not in the middle of it. Yeah. You know, right now they're trying to figure out their schedules in the middle of the schedules. And the stakes are so high and their tempers are volatile. That's just not the time to hash things out. You got to do it when you're both calm. Earlier in the season when Joel said we have to discuss having a second child and how I'm going to factor into that, whether he knew it or not, I think that's what he meant. And I, it feels like Julia maybe just have paid lip service to that like oh we are discussing it and now let's have one (laughs) no this is what it is and then i i also worry that you know melissa you noted in their last big fight about having a second child that they they got through the fight but they didn't actually resolve anything they didn't feel like that happened in this episode again you know, she goes and sees his bathroom. She says it's amazing. She says she wants them both to be happy. She doesn't apologize. And But has anything actually resolved? No. I, I worry that that's a pattern with them. and But I hope not because it doesn't seem good. And, you know, just withstanding a stress on your relationship is not the same thing as working through the conflict. Yeah. You know, no, no one addressed that I think Julia wants things to just be the way they were. Yes. And Joel doesn't. Yeah. That's unless you fix that, nothing else is actually going to be fixed. I think this is such a hard thing because who sacrifices and when and for how long? Yeah. 
Julia wants there to be a simple answer. And I too am attracted to the answer of who makes more money mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because it's clean cut. It's like, well, Joel, you don't make as much money as me. So therefore, if somebody has to make a sacrifice, if somebody has to cut corners or reduce their responsibilities at work, it's you. At the same time, it's like, well, that's not really a partnership. And it's right. certainly not validating to Joel. It's like, how do you make that decision? I don't think I've quite figured that out myself. Who sacrifices their future? How long do they do that? Do they get a respite from that after so many years? It's now their quote turn. You know, different people do that. Some people move one place and then they move a different place for the other partner or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I don't think anybody has a straightforward answer to how to do this. Also, I think in this particular situation with these particular characters, this is a problem you can throw money at. You know, when you were talking before about there need to be more resources in our society for people, I think that's totally true. But it also makes you realize all the privileges that these particular characters have that a lot of people don't even have that. But (laughs) this is a case where I feel like if you have that privilege, avail yourself of it. (laughs) (laughs) Just hire somebody. Get yourself a Mary Poppins to come in and <laughs> take care of Sydney. I wondered about that, actually. I was like, oh, well, is there some kind of thread or plot point that I missed that they don't have enough money for the, like childcare? Because I agree. Like, like- she seems to just be rolling in it and they're able to most of the time spend $1,500 for a parking space. You know? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Like way last season. That's true. She's just able to throw money at other problems. So why not this problem? You know, but it is something that, that again, that gender swap makes it so fascinating because I think Joel feels in some ways unsatisfied. And I wonder if like we've talked about earlier, if it's because society sort of tells him he should, and maybe Julia doesn't feel like she can level with her bosses because she's a woman and she has to fight twice as hard to be taken seriously. So maybe she really doesn't want to be the person who's like, sometimes I have to go pick up my kid. And that's interesting because like with Adam and Christina, while they do have their problems, you know, the episode in first season that did deal with Christina considering going back to work, that was really a non-issue because even though she said she felt valued and seen in ways she hadn't in years, she just drops that idea immediately. She she's like, oh, never mind. I'm I belong here at home. <laughs> and even <laughs> even though Adam's like, no, 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 let's make it work. Don't give it up so fast. Something in society tells her she shouldn't even be thinking about this. Whereas society is telling Joel, why are you at home? You 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 know you have all these talents and you're just as as valuable as your wife and and of course working in the home isn't as valued sometimes by our society as working outside of it even though it is really important work and so yeah it's just i thought this whole storyline was so fascinating it it revealed so many different things and it was really fun uncovering them with you guys <laughs> when even their character traits feel sort of gender swapped from from the sort of stereotypical gender traits like joel is very Mm soft-spoken and julia is a real alpha she says what's on her mind she takes charge and she's a good leader i think but i think there is a price to that too which is i don't think joel says what he's feeling a lot i was really kind of taken aback i think just because of how wonderful he typically is (laughs) at some of the ugliness of his behavior in this episode, like saying, you don't want me to work ever or saying, don't be so dramatic. Like 
these are not things I have heard come out of his mouth before. And I think when he has a minute to cool down, he would say, I didn't mean that. But because I think he's probably so often suppressing Hmm. what he's really feeling, then when it does come out, it comes out in a huge rush of something that there's only a kernel of truth to. And that I think is more typically something we think of with women, that Mm -hmm. women avoid the conflict, women just bear it. (laughs) But then they're suppressing all of that and And then Julia is laying down the hard, practical, unemotional, I make more money. And I really didn't find it that ugly that he said, you don't want me to work ever. Even though I, hearing you talk, I totally get, well, that's not like a fair statement. You're right. That isn't an I feel statement. But she also was so pushing him in a moment, like you said earlier, like this is not the time to talk about this, but Julia always gets to decide when to talk about something (laughs) and when not to. And I mean, they're both late and scrambling and stressed to the max. And that's when she brings up, how are we going to have a second kid? We need to discuss this. And then he's like, okay, you want to, you don't want me to work ever. And I'm like, I get it. (laughs) Because that's, that is, I mean, why would she even like bring that up in that moment? And I kind of wonder, and easy for me to say, I've chosen to have zero children. (laughs) So I'm like, coming at this from a different angle, but I'm like, why do they even want a second kid when what they also both really want is thriving work careers? You know, I just don't even understand why this is something that they're, I mean, maybe that speaks to this idea of, can you have it all? And I think- no, you can't, which is why I've chosen not to have it all. But a lot of people really sort of insist on it and something is going to get dropped. And I think Julie is okay with Joel being dropped. <laughs> Good way of putting it. Tough. No right answer. No. <laughs> well, let's move on to something a little happier. First of all, I love seeing Camille and Hattie together. That yeah. felt like a pairing we hadn't gotten a lot of. This whole storyline really raises sort of the age old debate. Hattie is here there doing community service for her college applications, which she freely admits to Camille. But here's the age old debate. Is doing a good thing for (laughs) selfish reasons still good? This question first presented itself to me when I was in middle and high school because our schools implemented an incentive program that there were different levels of perks students could qualify for. And the qualifications were incumbent upon fulfilling a certain number of hours of community service. And so if you wanted to have a black card, which was the highest (laughs) status, you had to, I forget how many hours it was, but you had to reach a certain number of hours of community service. And then obviously then in applying for colleges and whatnot, that all looks good. And like Melissa, you've talked about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. I realized even back then in middle school, oh, wow, look at all these people who qualified for the black card. They all did community service. But does it it fail to teach us what the value of community service is by incentivizing it externally? Because it was, to me, just a means to an end. I didn't really care that I was doing good in my community. It was just I wanted to sit up in the student lounge during lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Such a good question. I think that there's, um, like with sort of teaching students, giving them extrinsic motivation to do something good for them. Like, for example, if you have a kind of short quiz on the reading, 
you're incentivizing them doing the reading, but the hope would be that they understand, oh, actually the reading is really important for these assignments I'm going to do later, or this actually enhances my experience in the class. So I can see something similar because I think my high school or junior high had something, not a, not a perks program, but you had to, I think for civics, you had to do like a community service thing. And I can see forcing students to do that and then seeing which ones actually become like motivated to do more. I, I know I, as a kid, volunteered at the Humane Society and I really enjoyed that. And then I got a job there. So it had some immediate reward for me, but yeah. I think it it's not going to work for everyone, right? Because some students are just going to do it to get get it on their applications or to get that reward. But others might, you know, get interested in like the nonprofit world, for example. I guess I see it as it's forcing people to do good. And for a lot of them, that might be the only time that they do that particular good. But for others, it could be the beginning of something more. Yeah. Well, and the good still gets done. That's right. Like is, that's right. Is the solution not have anyone doing anything good? Right. Like that's not that's not good. Right. I'm sort of thinking of the opposite issue right now um, because uh, an expression that is promoted at my job uh, a lot is intention versus impact, but it's usually meant for something negative, not something positive like community service. So it's like you may not have bad intentions if you're an English teacher and the only works you teach are by white people. You're not intending necessarily anything bad with that, but the impact is really not good. But I wonder, can the same be true if it's a reversal? Like if you don't have a good intention, but the impact is good, is it still the impact that matters if you're just trying Mm. to get, you know, your perks or what have you, but the impact is still people are getting helped. This was a really interesting storyline for a few reasons. I mean, number one, Alex does kind of act like Hattie is the only one getting something out of this. And she, I think, kind of rightly points out, well, you get paid and I don't. So we're both extrinsically motivated. But then it was... I, I mean, I laughed out loud when Hattie was like complaining to her parents and she's like, I work with this guy who just thinks I'm a privileged white girl. And I'm like, I love you and you're more than that, but you are a privileged white girl. And for you to be like <laughs> thinking that's an unfair assessment is a real sign of your privilege. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. She didn't use the word privilege in that conversation. She used it later. What she complained about to her parents was that he was rude. Oh, and I you're, right. Ab- you're right. And I think he absolutely was rude to her. Interesting. I think when he explained himself, you know, why don't I just go ahead and play that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you please stop talking to me like I'm an idiot? I don't think you're an idiot. Okay, then what do you think I am? Do you think that I am a loser because I come here and I, I care and I try? Or do you do you just think that I'm a privileged little little white girl? Are you not getting enough attention? I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Um, well, I come here every day and I give 100% and you sit there and you judge me and you don't even know me. Yes, I do. Kids like you come through here all the time. They think it looks good on a college application. Yeah, okay, so I want to go to college. Is that a terrible thing? Does that make me a bad person? No, it doesn't. But you're here for a week, maybe two, and then you're gone. I guess you all seem kind of lightweight to me sometimes. No offense, but it's hard enough for me running this place with all that turnover. So, I'm sorry. You're just here and you're completely selfless and this isn't a career path for you and you don't want this to be your job. You're absolutely right. 
It's my job. Uh, I get paid. It's a career I'm interested in. Okay, great. Thank you. Good to know. Mostly because my family used to eat here. This place probably saved my life. Okay. I'm sorry. Can you just fix the mixer? Yeah, I know. That's what I'm going to do. Thank you. First off, I just got to say, I think they have fantastic chemistry. <laughs> they just like crackling. And when we <laughs> talked about it before with like Mark and Sarah have the real giggly chemistry and you pointed out, Melissa, oh, there's another kind where it's like lustful. And so <laughs> this feels like that kids in a sandbox bickering like a Sam and Diane, like they're just, yeah, like they're fighting and then they're just going to start making uh, well, something I love about their exchange. <laughs> they each call each other on something and they, they each kind of disarm the other, you know, she says, Oh, this is entirely selfless. And he says, you're right. And then when he says, you know, my family and I used to eat here, he shuts her way down and she doesn't even seem bothered by it. She seems kind of humbled by it. And like, you know what? Great. I'm going to go fix the mixer because <laughs> you made your point and I'm, <laughs> I'm big enough to like, okay, you win. But it all felt, and then he says, thank you. So I think in a weird way, I think they both made their points in a fairly constructive way. Like, I think he did call her on her privilege in a way that she wasn't able to own up to before. And I think he is going to cut her a little more slack and give her a little more respect in a way that he wasn't going to. My favorite thing he said was about turnover. Mm. Because that just seemed like, oh, that's not even a value judgment. That's a practical thing that makes your job harder yeah. because people come in here and they they don't stay. And so you have to then deal with their that. community service. They're done. Anyway, I like them together. I do, too. Definitely agree that their, their dynamic is very like back and forth jibes. And I think she had an interesting like attention to him, like out of the gate. Yeah. Like he didn't have for her until they have this conversation. On one hand, I think maybe she's just physically attracted to him and cool. He's a cool, good looking guy. But then I think also she's encountering a kind of interesting feature of white privilege, which is that people give you the benefit of the doubt, especially if you're kind of a young white woman. Now, sometimes people think, okay, you don't know very much, you're kind of naive, whatever. But also people are like, well, you're pretty innocent. I'm not going to think you're up to no good. And what she encounters with him, and she, I think she even says it, she's just like, why are you acting like I'm, you don't even know me, <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, welcome to what it might feel like to be a person of color, a differently abled person. And people make assumptions about you before they even know you. Yeah. And when we're talking about certain identity categories, those assumptions can be very negative and they can very they can wear on a person's self-image. And I thought, oh, this is an experience that a lot of us who are white, we don't have very often. And when we do, it's like, what? How unfair is this? I remember, this is going to sound somewhat snooty, but I taught English in Korea. And because of that, I was able to travel. And one of the places I went was China. And normally when you have an American passport, like sometimes you don't even need a visa. They're just like, come on in, American passport. You are just hustled through customs and you're good to go. And when I went to China, they searched my bag. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what is Chinese customs searching my bag? I felt this feeling of like, how dare you? You see my American wow. passport? This American passport's like gold. It gets me in anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> no questions asked. And I think there's something about whiteness that 
ends up having a similar effect. And Hattie was actually getting the opposite, which was he thought he'd sort of clocked who she was. And he's like, oh, I'm not investing in you because you don't really want to be here. You only could be here for a little bit anyway. Why bother with you? And I get why she's offended, but I'm also like, oh, this is what it's like for other people. You know, that doesn't necessarily make his stereotype correct, but I kind of, I'm kind of like, this is a good lesson to learn. When that stereotype is funny, when she says, you don't even know me. And he said, yes, I do. <laughs> I was sort of taken aback right at first. Cause I thought, well, that's prejudging prejudice. But then I looked it up. I'm like, what is the actual definition of prejudice? <laughs> and it was at least according to Google preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. And then I thought, okay, well, he's meeting the preconceived opinion part, but then he goes on to describe his reason mm -hmm. and his experience. So I don't think it was prejudicial, really. You know, he's, yes, he doesn't have any previous experience with her, but he says, you know, I see people like you all the time. And yes, there's a bit of unfairness in that. But I think by her even bringing this up, she then sort of proves or at least introduces the idea that perhaps she might be different. And because of the way he calls her on it, she might feel a, uh, a, a call to be better than those people he's encountered before. Makes me feel kind of hopeful for them. Yeah. And like at the end when she has that great exit line of <laughs> you should dock my pay. I loved as she was walking away. I felt like I could feel her forcing herself not to turn around. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I'm going to land this exit line, I got to walk straight out of here. Yeah. He sits back in his chair and he just watches. Yeah. Thought, oh, they are terrific. It's like that that scene in Waiting to Exhale that's now like a meme where you like blow up the car and you just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, not uh, destructive. Um, well, you know, the way we were talking about Joel and Julia and their like genders being swapped now I can't help but wonder, what would it be like if she had been rude to him? I just imagine he probably has experienced that and probably would just not say anything. Like, it's it's kind of a privilege to get to call someone out on, like, you're rude to me and I haven't deserved it. You know, like, that's that's something probably not everyone would feel able to do. Which makes me think she definitely has a lot to learn from him. But I think the same might be true both ways and not because she's white, but because she's Hattie. You know, she's really a lot more than she seems. She really isn't just like this spoiled girl. I mean, we've kind of spent a whole season talking about how she's kind of extraordinary. If he could have seen her coach Adam when Adam's trying to like practice fire people. I'm afraid I'm going to have to lay you off. I'm, I'm very sorry. I feel terrible about this, and I just want you to know how much I valued you working here. Okay, honey. That was really, really good. Mm -hmm. But you can't start crying. I wasn't crying. No, Dad, Mom oh. is right. You can't they ask are. somebody to take care of you emotionally when you're firing them. That's not what I'm doing. Well, okay. That is what I'm doing. That's what you're doing. You know, for a teenager, honey, sometimes you're, you're pretty wise. She gets things. She really does. She's a very bright and wise and loving person. And I think that's cool too, you know, that they both have maybe something to offer the other. Yeah, I'm real excited. I really love Alex. <laughs> yeah. I think both people in this conversation, right, they're learning something about the other person that sort of challenged their preconceived notions. 
And I think what's difficult, especially in conversations about race, is that we have so many preconceived notions, some of them conscious, some of them unconscious, and they shape the way we see the other person. And what's difficult is to be surprised out of those preconceived notions, right? Yeah. And I feel like what you said at the beginning, Caleb, is that they kind of are disarming each other. And I think you're right. They're staying in the conversation, right? It doesn't shut down. But that is really difficult, even for adults, frankly. So when we have conversations about race and someone says, this is racist, you know, that's usually like, boop, hit the jack button. I'm out of here. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and like, it shuts everything down. And that's not quite the level of conversation they had. But I appreciated that this was an example of two people of opposite races kind of saying, this is how I think about you. This is how I think about you. Here's the ways we're wrong. (laughs) We're going to stick in it long enough to figure it out. I was curious what you all thought about her comeback about how he's doing this for a job. I get that it does kind of invalidate his get on his high horseness, but I also was like, but he does different responsibilities than you, Shirley. So, (laughs) yeah. I'm not sure that he's there all the time. It's his full time. (laughs) Yeah. I just found myself thinking about. I guess it goes back to that question of does ha- does the fact that he gets paid invalidate any of the good good works aspect of it? I think you make a really good point just in asking that question because like something that annoys me about my profession is that people seem to think that you're only supposed to be a teacher out of the goodness of your heart. And that like, it's cool that we don't pay <laughs> teachers very much because they're just these giving you know, selfless beings. And it's like, no, you should actually compensate us fairly. (laughs) So yeah, no, that is not a fair thing for her to say. And I think it is kind of a sign of her being naive, this idea of like, see, we're both getting something out of this. (laughs) It's like, well, but the thing you're getting out of it is different. I I, I don't know. It, It didn't, she seemed to be like equating them in a way that I didn't think was fair. It is interesting to note, I believe that this is the most major, even in this one episode, it's the most major black character on the show thus far who's not a member of the Trussell family. That's something else I thought, speaking of the Trussell family, I'm like, it's barely ever mentioned that Crosby and Jasmine are an interracial couple. She just happens to be black. You know, it feels like that sort of colorblind thing, like where every once in a while it will come up, but it hasn't really been part of a storyline yet. I feel like Jasmine and Jabbar could have been cast by almost anyone. But with Alex, only a black actor could have played that part because he was written black, you know, and, and it it's a part of the story already. And yeah, it's, it's so funny. I was thinking of that just while we were having this conversation. The only mention of race in this entire episode between them is when she calls herself a privileged little white girl. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you imagine a white actor playing Alex, oh, just like all the air comes out of it wouldn't the have made story. any sense. It would just yeah. falls apart. It so even when it's not really explicitly a part of the story, it's so intrinsically a part of it. Yeah. That that's where so much of the dramatic tension comes from. Yeah. Well, moving on to the last storyline where this episode gets its title. I have to fire seven people. The company is not doing well at all. And Gordon wants me to fire seven people so we don't go under. Oh, my God, honey. I mean, look, don't don't worry. It's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, we'll be okay. Yeah, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. What about everybody else? I mean, who are you going to let go? I don't know. I'm making a list in my head. Who? Honey, can we please tell me? Please just tell me. I know all these people. Bill. 
Honey, you can't fire Bill. He has a girl that just went off to I college. I know he does, but everybody's got something. Jack Gilman just bought a house. Ari's going through a divorce, and you know, Manny's kid is blind. I mean, everybody's got Manny's something that makes me feel guilty about it. Did you just make it. that up? Manny's kid no, is why blind. Why would I make up that Manny's kid is blind? I know blind. he wore glasses, but I don't think he's blind. He's legally blind. Oh. I need a beer. Forget the beer. We need to get wrecked. I wrote down, I'm so sad that seven of these people we've never seen have any interaction with Adam are going to cease to have interaction with him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I did think it was funny that suddenly he's like, hey, Mary. I'm like, oh, he, he talks to his coworkers now. It's convenient for the story. We've never seen him talk Fire to Fire Mike. No, I'm kidding. Aww. He probably doesn't make enough either. No, probably not. That's one person we've seen you work with. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out what the seven names were referencing. I really thought about it. I was like, is that referencing some kind of like myth? It sounded so sort of like weighty. <laughs> Like it and does. there's seven names, and they are. <laughs> and then I realized when I watched it again today, oh, the seven names are these seven people he has to fire. It's yeah. as simple as that. I guess I was just primed <laughs> since I was coming on the podcast today. I was primed to think, what does it all mean? <laughs> you know, what's the, the deeper layers? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I kept expecting Gordon to just say seven names, but I don't think he ever actually does. He says, get me a list. And he says, um, yeah, I need you to fire seven. seven. Yeah. People. And so it is interesting that the title would be seven names, which I agree does sound sort of ominous. Yeah. Maybe it's just because of my ring reference earlier. That was probably it. Seven. Yours is better than mine. (laughs) Thank you. This is so random, but I think there's maybe visible microphones attached to the kitchen lights. So whenever the camera is in the dining room focused on the kitchen, it also happens then when Max comes in and says, what does wrecked mean? On the poles going up to the ceiling, there are these big things attached to them. And I think maybe they're microphones. Oh, that's fun. But I don't know. Christina continues to crack me up. I loved her like taking Adam's already stressful situation and in the most like caring way possible, just making it way worse. Like, (laughs) no, you can't fire him. He's got this. And just, I don't know. It was one of those things where like somebody wants to help, but they actually (laughs) would be so much more helpful if they would just pipe down. (laughs) There is this guy at the food bank that I'm working at. He treats me like I'm an idiot teeny bopper with like a bleeding heart. And like, even if I am, it's rude. That is rude. Well, you're not. It's like subtle though. He's so good at it. That's the worst kind. It is, It's he's, he's the worst. And like, just respect the people you're around. Yeah, well, listen, if you really feel like he's being, you know, derisive with the laughter, you should call him on it. I'd punch him in yeah. the groin. Kick him where it counts. <laughs> Is she drunk? Like, what is this advice? Why is she saying, kick him in the groin? And like, juxtapose that with Adam saying, if you feel like he's being derisive with the laughter, and she's just like, kick him where it counts. Like, what is this advice? It's so weird. I wonder if it's meant to kind of make us like, sort of like the Gordon and Sarah thing where we kind of know something already. We already know that Hattie is like kind of misrepresenting you know, it's not like he's true. really being super rude. He's just like not interested. Yeah. And kind of just like being short with her. And yeah, he is kind of making getting some, under her skin. Yeah, he's getting <laughs> under her skin. And so she's kind of like acting really aggrieved. And so maybe Christina was like, Oh, this guy must be really a jerk. So facetiously, like kick him, kick him in where it hurts. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we as the viewer are like, well, I don't know if he deserves that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and Christina is really quick to come to Hattie's defense all the time. You know, she like last season called Amber a whore and a bitch and all these things just because she <laughs> deigned to, you know, mess with her daughter. So I do think that is an interesting facet of Christina's personality. Like it was sort of funny that she said that because we knew the whole story, but it's also like, you're maybe like to, you're a little like Kelsey's mom, aren't you? <laughs> like your daughter is perfect and you're gonna- the Devotion is a little too unquestioning. <laughs> yes. And skeptical. Yeah, yeah. But what were you about to ask us, Caleb? Oh, if either of you have ever been fired or I, oh. I suspect not, but if you've ever had to fire someone. I have been fired and I have been laid off, but I've never had to fire anyone. Interesting. Thankfully. Dumb question. What's the difference? Okay, well, laid off is like what Adam is having to do. It's there's an economic problem with the company. It's not like your performance was bad, which is what mm -hmm. makes it pretty painful. It's just like we just have to cut people or like just cutting the budget, basically. My first job out of college was at apartments.com. I lived in Chicago at the time. I was on the job right when the internet internet.com bubble burst. Wow. <laughs> so I, I don't remember how long I had that job. I was like editing some of the um, ads basically. It was pretty like low level work. I think I'd been on the job maybe three to six months, let's say that. And the company just needed to shed employees like quickly. So they did a tiered layoffs. They laid off people who were the last hire in every department. People have been there a mid amount of time and then upper management, I guess. And so they randomly called me into a meeting. I had no clue. Like I'm literally just out of college. I didn't even know you could be laid off. That's my own privilege, right? Like I just didn't even know this was like a reality that could happen to people. So I go into this room and there's like a lawyer and uh, a representative of the company. These are not people I work with. And they're like, we are laying you off. You, you sign this paper and we're going to take you back to your desk and then you have to leave. And then my boss wow. escorted me to the elevator. Wow. And I was so- Same day. Wow. Yeah, I, I was so confused. Oh. And I, you, I felt like a criminal. <laughs> yeah. like, what did I do? And my boss was sympathetic and, and apologetic, you know? But obviously, basically- layoffs happen like that. They happen that quickly because from a company standpoint, you do not want to slow roll a layout so that people get freaked out and so that they have time to get mad. Mm -hmm. And then you don't want people to linger around so they can talk to their coworkers yeah. or damage your property or do anything, but it's brutal. I mean, it's like, you're gone. And I remember going home and being like, I don't even know what happened. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> like, oh. What happened? Oh, it was terrible. And then I got a job at the Art Institute of Chicago and I got fired from there. <laughs> oh man, this was a rough time for you. Oh man, I um, had interviewed there when I was unemployed. And then I had gotten this job at the medical school in Northwestern. And I was, a, I was sort of a secretary, basically it was my job title. And then they, the Art Institute had an opening and they, the people contacted me. We're like, we were interested in interviewing. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And it was in their publications department. What I didn't know at the time was I was replacing a woman who had been there before computers existed. 
so she had like she was she knew everything she was one of those people in an office that like knew everything being replaced by me (laughs) who knew nothing (laughs) so my boss she was a very busy executive director of the publications department there so those beautiful art books that was her department that put those out so I was helping her and I was her assistant but she kept saying you know I feel like you're not working very hard and I I was so confused I'm like I'm I'm a hard worker I uh, you know, tell me what to do. But the problem was she needed someone who didn't need to be told what to do. Mm. And not only did I not understand the office, I also was not, I was so new to like careers, right? Outside of like little high school, college jobs. I didn't know how to even go about asking yeah. questions. She felt so bad when she fired me. She was like, I'm so sorry. This is just not a good fit. And it's like, yeah, it was a bad fit. She said, you can either stay here for two more weeks or leave now and we'll pay you for the next two weeks. You know, looking back, I felt really bad. I felt like I'd really messed up. But now I see genuinely it was a really bad fit. She just hired the wrong person, which happened to be me. Mm. And I probably was never going to succeed at that job because I just didn't have the experience that she needed. Yeah, I feel like being laid off is probably a little less worse in some ways because it's not your fault, but it's also worse because you had no clue it was coming. Unless you have your ear to the ground about the company and that you know it's doing badly, which in this case, I didn't get the sense that anybody at that shoe company had any clue that things were kind of like on the rocks. Yeah, Adam seemed even surprised when Gordon said it. Yeah, and Sarah And Adam Adam knew things weren't great. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Um, no, I don't think I have ever been fired, but I have really had a pretty small life. I lived in my hometown until two years ago and, um, I've only had a handful of jobs. Really. I I was a waitress at pizza hut for two years. And then I worked at Hastings, your entertainment superstore for five years. (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you count, I was a grad assistant when I was getting my master's at Pitt state. And so that job ended when I graduated. And then um, I was a high school teacher at two different places, my, my old high school and back in Pittsburgh and now here at Lawrence. So that's, that's it. So I don't think it's necessarily a sign of, well, I've just, you know, never done anything. You know, I just, I think I played it safe in a lot of ways. And so, you know, it just, I never lost a job because of that. What about you, Caleb? Have you? I don't think so. So many of my jobs are so fleeting anyway that I, I don't know if I would know if I'd been fired. I, I can think <laughs> of one gig that I had semi-regularly that I I overslept through. Oh, no. One of them and then was never asked back again. So I I bear no hard feelings other than my own regret of like really letting one person in particular down. And that was at a church. Oh, but I don't know that I've ever been, I don't think I've been fired or let go. I did have at least two friends get, I guess, technically they weren't fired from NYU. They were, their contracts weren't renewed, but it was, it was basically fired. And actually that prompted me to resign my job there. But I know one of the things that bothered both of them was that they were given the news by human resources people who they did not know at all. But the decision came from people they did know. Yeah. 
See, that, that's probably a legal, I'm sure that's a legal coverage thing, right? Uh, probably, yeah. But now that I think about it with regards to this episode, does TNS not have an HR department? Like, yeah, why, did it, Adam's why job? did it fall to Adam? And yet maybe it's good because I think, well, I don't know if it would have made either of my friends actually feel better to be <laughs> fired by the people they knew, but I think that would have made them feel more respected mm. and like have some dignity rather than, oh, go talk to this stranger who will then inform you that no one wants you here anymore. Yeah. Ugh. Like, yeah. Well, even though we had never seen Mary before, watching Adam take her into his office oh. was mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Yes. And, you know, in this podcast, we have been examining Adam with greater scrutiny than I think most viewers probably do. And I think that's fair. And I think it's good because we shouldn't let the fact that someone is nice cloud all the nuances of who they are. But character does mean something. And in case we don't say it enough, I think Adam is a fundamentally decent and good man. I do too. I liked that Gordon, like I said earlier, recognized that. And I like that Sarah, you could tell she appreciated that he said that and wanted to be there for her brother. I thought it was really sweet. Yeah. I also really liked the song in that scene. I looked it up. It was Try by, forgive me for butchering these names, which I'm sure I will, Sitzel Endresen and Buga Wesseltoft. I swear those are their names and not people that Rose knows from St. Olaf. (laughs) (laughs) But it's Norwegian jazz. Who knew that was a thing? I I love it. I noticed that song too. It felt like the right tone as Sarah was like peering in, watching Adam fire Mary. Yeah. Well, I really liked this episode. I did too. I am a sucker for anything that asks you to consider what is the right thing to do. And like I said, I felt like all the storylines were these conflicts that didn't have a clear cut right and wrong choice. And so I was just lapping it up. And it's funny, I had even seen like ahead of time as we were planning things, looking at the synopsis of this episode, it seemed to me like kind of a nothing episode. And even... Alex, who I was so excited that he was coming on. This was his first episode. I remember thinking, oh, but he doesn't do anything in his first episode. (laughs) I loved the whole episode. I was just really taken with it. His part was more substantial than I remembered. None of these things really have a clear clear cut answer per se. Should Julia make more concessions? Should Joel stop doing his repair construction job? You know, should Gordon have... I don't know. That's a clear cut one. Gordon just <laughs> fired some people or let them go. But, you know, should Sarah go out with Gordon? Should she tell Kelsey's mom? All these things are kind of like these conundrums. It makes sense that they offer a lot for us to think about, I guess. I think it's my favorite episode of season two so far. Like I, th- I thought it was, yeah, really nuanced and complex. And it didn't really feel to me like anyone had a throwaway storyline, which sometimes it feels like one or two characters do. Even the lightest one, you know, is Crosby being disappointed. Yeah, it's actually very significant stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed this one so much. Also, it ended with like, the I feel like a parenthood classic, which is to have them all gathered around the table, you know? I even noted, it feels like they do that all the time, but they don't actually do that that often. And it was nice to see one again with the lights and everything. Yeah. 
And I may be ascribing too much significance to this episode, but I would have said that season two was where parenthood really found its voice, sort of. And yet throughout watching season one, it seemed like, oh, season one is stronger than I remembered. And thus far in season two, I I keep thinking, wait, when does it get as good as I thought it got? (laughs) A lot of the season one episodes, especially, while there maybe wasn't a clear cut solution to conflicts, they all resolved. And it always felt like, oh, this is the episode where such and such character learns such and such lesson. And this episode all felt more complicated than that. And it makes me wonder, is this the turning point in season two? Is is now when the show gets more complex and more complicated and less about there being a lesson in each episode? And, you know, maybe Michael B. Jordan <laughs> is the harbinger of <laughs> the complexity and nuance and great things to come. All right. Well, um, Ruth, did you have any final comments or thoughts about the show or anything about that? I'll just say thanks for having me on. It was really fun to talk about these different storylines. I, I hope I said something illuminating. <laughs> you definitely did. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a great one. I loved it so much. You said lots of illuminating. Good, good. Thank you for oh, validating me. I'm just like Sarah. <laughs> I need to blossom under your warm regard. <laughs> Caleb and I have We all that are. Too. We all want to feel like we matter. That's yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I stole that from Oprah. <laughs> Um, well, in any case, um, thanks listeners out there. Um, it means a lot and please like us if you haven't already on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram, parenthood pals everywhere. If you do like what you hear, we do appreciate ratings and reviews. They mean so much. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You can always find all of our info on parenthoodpals.com. And Ruth, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Sure. Um, I am a writer after all. And um, (laughs) if people are interested in seeing some of my writing, they can go to my website, ruthcwilliams.com. And there they'll see some information about my poetry collection, Flatlands. And I've got a couple of chapbooks and some other things if they're curious. Well, and you know what? Fans, listeners, uh, listeners is better than fans. Uh, you should, you should be interested because I love Ruth's poetry and um, Flatlands was one of my favorite books I read all year. And so, yes, please, please do Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true.